Sometimes, in the overheated house, but not for long, smirking and speaking rather loud, I see myself among the crowd, where no one fits the singer to his song, or sifts the unpainted from the painted faces of the people who are always on my stare. They were not with me when I walked in the heavenly places, but could I spare in the blind earth's great silences and spaces, the din, the scuffle, the long stare. If I went back, and it was not there, back to the old known things that are the new, the folded glory of the gorse, the sweet briar air, to the larks that cannot praise us, knowing nothing of what we do, and the divine wise trees, that do not care. Yet to leave fame still with such eyes and that bright hair, God, if I might and before I go hence, take in her stead to our tossed bed one little dream, no matter how small, how wild. Just now I think I found it in a field under a fence, a frail dead newborn lamb, ghostly and pitiful, and white, a blot upon the night, the moon's drop child. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each week I read a poem, look at its inner workings, and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is Fame by Charlotte Mew. Before I begin, I have a suggestion. Try to find a copy of the poem somewhere so that you can read along. If you're having trouble, you'll find a link to one below in the description. There are few people that cut as tragic a figure in poetry as Charlotte Mew. Her life was one filled with difficulty and challenge. She came from an initially large family which looked wealthy from the outside. A large family which unfortunately dwindled over time. In the beginning, there were seven children in the Mew family. As time wore on, it seemed plagued by tragedy, however, and by the time Charlotte Mew was approaching adolescence, three of those children had passed away. Their troubles were not to end there, as both her only brother Henry and youngest sister Freda suffered from schizophrenia and were committed to asylum separately. This left just two remaining children, Charlotte and her sister Anne. These trying events would bond the sisters together and they would spend their lifetimes looking after one another. The traumatic events of their upbringing would stay with both sisters for the rest of their lives. It led the pair to take the decision to never marry, and thus never pass on those genes for mental illness that seemed to plague their family. This may seem an unusually drastic choice, but it was a stance rooted in the popular theories of eugenics that were making the rounds in the late Victorian period. Outwardly, the family seemed wealthy. However, their own money was dwindling, and the difficulties of the Mew family would have shocked those looking in from the outside. In a strange way, though, this hidden just beneath the surface quality would become a defining characteristic for Mew in her entirety. Her family tragedies were not the only thing she hid from the public sphere. Mew was a gay woman at a time when to be so was seen far more as a mental illness than simply a state of being. 
She struggled throughout her life with her own physical desires and attractions. These wants would often come into conflict with her strict religious beliefs and sense of propriety. This conflict would suffuse throughout her entire body of work. Yvonne Boland perhaps put it best in 2008 in her introduction to Muse selected works when she wrote, death, insanity, class. Suddenly, in that apparent decorum of Imperial England, a window opens into a savage time. The Mew family are the dark side of empire. Charlotte Mew lived the pain and contradiction. The shame of a genteel life lived without the money gentility requires. The pain of a sexuality gentility would reject. This life of contradiction extended far beyond just her personal life and had a huge effect on her writing as well. Although Charlotte Mew wrote towards the end of the Victorian period, her poetry and voice refused the conventions of that era, often choosing to subvert the expectation of it instead. When reading her work, you might be surprised at the modern tone to all of it. This is not the type of poem we'd expect from a Victorian poet. Generally, the poetry of that era was designed to compound the idea of empire in the minds of the reader and cement the nobility of the artist and the individual. Much like their predecessors, the Romantics, Victorian-era poets like Alfred Lord Tennyson, Jared Manley Hopkins and Christina Rossetti all sought to elevate their subject through ornate language that brimmed with gilded emotion. The only difference being that it was now tempered by the scepticism of an age of progress. Usually, they bemoaned the perceived loss of the individual. But more often than not, as was the fashion at the time, they extolled the virtues of the civilizing influence of the British Empire, be it through quaint pastorals that glorified Britain's countryside, or fierce anthems that championed the great British war machine. Charlotte Mew opted for none of the above, her work was far more concerned with real life in the British Empire, as opposed to some grand idealization of it. This is not really a surprise when we understand that she spent a great deal of her own time volunteering as a social worker in London. In this capacity, she bore witness to the true horrors and hardships lurking within British society. Couple this with the hardships that her own family had faced, and it's no great shock that she found it impossible to swallow the pomp and propaganda of that era. This combined with a penchant for direct language and a love of experimental poetry would earn her a title as a proto-modernist. That modernist flair is clear in fame. However, it does still have the hangings of Victorian poetry. It follows a rigorous rhyming scheme. Loud, Crowd, long, song, spaces, places, spare, stare, there. It utilizes classic poetic techniques like sibilance, the intentional repetition of S, smirking, speaking, singer, song, stare, spare, its gentle repetition guiding the reader swiftly through those opening lines. Despite this respect for poetic tradition, the actual form of the poem and tone of it is something quite modern. The layout is almost free verse, 
Long meandering lines are snapped off by short, sharp statements. Rhetorical devices are met with resilient cries of energy and defiance. Her language speaks right to the core of the average reader and stands firmly against the pontification of early Victorian poets. With such a contradiction to the literary traditions of the time, it's no wonder that she found only small literary acclaim. Her legacy, however, would go on to influence many future modernists who named her as one of their favourite poets. The likes of Marianne Moore and T.S. Eliot. Although her literary fame was not widespread, she did court a lot of public attention thanks to her outspoken manner and her gender-challenging attire. Mew was famous around London for her love of male tailoring and clothing. It's important to remember that at the time, such things would have tread the line of the scandalous. It is possibly this notoriety and local fame that has inspired the title of the poem. Indeed, the setting we encounter in this first section is one of society and frivolity. Sometimes in the overheated house, but not for long, smirking and speaking rather loud, I see myself among the crowd where no one fits the singer to his song or sifts the unpainted from the painted faces of the people who are always on my stare. A stifling atmosphere is established almost immediately. In this overheated house, the speaker of the poem seems to be observing themselves from the outside in some bizarre fashion. Right off the bat, that proto-modernist quality is apparent. She is commenting on herself. I see myself among the crowd. But more importantly, it doesn't seem like they love what they see. Smirking and speaking rather loud. A picture of brash arrogance is painted here. This observant critique has already set itself apart from Victorian verse in its directness and self-derogatory tone. In fact, the only thing this version of the speaker has going for them is the fact that they don't seem to be alone. In the next few lines, Muse shows a false society, a place of artifice or a vacuum of the sincere. In the overheated house, no one fits the singer to his song. No one can distinguish from the mass of opinions being thrown around. No one can find the true voice of people. She continues, or sifts the unpainted from the painted faces. And we understand that this, rather than a comment on art and criticism, is a skewering admonishment of the false faces that people present in public life. I have always felt that these opening lines must surely have inspired T.S. Eliot when it came to writing the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, a modernist poetry classic. The first section completes the setting by stating, Upon my stare. These lines seem to stem from the occasional bouts of popularity that both muse poetry and appearance would often spark. Perhaps she wrestled with her own persona in a group setting, as many of us often do. We find ourselves thinking, is that my laugh? Am I truly so loud? The strict ABBA rhyme scheme moves our eyes through the lines quickly, and this, combined with the stifling imagery, grants a sense of relief as the speaker turns their poem to nature. They were not with me when I walked in heavenly places. But could I spare, in the blind earth's great silences and spaces, the din, the scuffle, 
the long stare. If I went back, and it was not there. These are among the most typically Victorian lines of the entire poem. That magnificent reverence for nature that so many of the poets of the time used permeates the poem. When we read of the heavenly places, we might be tempted to think of Mew inspired by the likes of Ralph Waldo Emerson or Elizabeth Barrett Browning. In actual fact, Mew held one Victorian literary figure above all others, Emily Bronte. Those words, heavenly places, are actually Bronte's own, borrowed by Mew. There are many different snippets from Bronte's work used throughout this poem, and we'll encounter them as we progress. Perhaps Mew thought it fitting to idealize the natural world using a vision of it that she found so soothing. We are given the first inkling of an objective, uninterested earth in these lines. Blind earth's great silences and spaces. It's important to note the capitalization of earth here, giving it an almost deity-like quality, something so beyond the scope of human comprehension that it boggles the mind. This almost alien description of the natural world places it firmly at odds with human concepts like fame, which pale by comparison. Mew then puts a rhetorical question to her audience over three non-sequential lines. But could I spare the din, the scuffle, the long stare, if I went back and it was not there? Could she simply leave the stifling room, the house, the city, the recognition of others behind her for a life in this natural world? Or would she miss the long stare in the street? It is this exact question that I feel has granted this poem a sort of timeless quality. The fame described by Mew is nowhere near the form that fame takes today. Television, social media and the internet in general have created a world where recognition is sometimes a life goal. And despite this, in 2021, more and more people talk about escaping it all and retreating to an idealized rural world. This poem has captured the strange feeling of fear and anxiety the contemplation of that escape brings to us. Could we leave the modern world behind? In the next section though, the entire notion of fame is ridiculed in the face of something much more ancient. Back to the old known things that are the new. The folded glory of the gorse. The sweet briar air. To the larks that cannot praise us knowing nothing of what we do, and the divine wise trees that do not care. In the age of extreme industrialization and ever forward progress, the natural world has fallen by the wayside in Victorian society. This is something that many poets of the time commented on. In a sense, the old known things had taken on a kind of novelty due to their disappearing from urban life. Another phrase adapted from Bronte here is the folded glory of the gorse, the sweet briar air. A phrase cobbled together from two of her most famous works, her poem, Love and Friendship, and her famous gothic novel, Wuthering Heights. The latter is particularly interesting, as within that tale, the same theme of society versus the wild is being played with. The other darker theme that is explored within this famous work and another possible reason for its reference here 
is human nature versus societal expectation. In Wuthering Heights, Heathcliff embodies this struggle in a savage fashion, with the answer in his case being no, humans cannot escape their own nature, even if it's in their best interests. The lines in Mew's poem seem to agree with the conclusion drawn by Emily Bronte. To the larks that cannot praise us, knowing nothing of what we do, and the divine wise trees that do not care. Nature wins out. It does not care for the trappings of human society. Fame, wealth and ambition do not matter to something so grand and ancient. The natural world does not pay us any attention and does not care for how we see ourselves as a society. It is a poignant message and would seem an almost natural ending point for any other poet with less to say. Charlotte Mew, however, always had plenty to say. Not content to simply play with nature versus society as a team, she chooses instead to use the final section of the poem to delve into a much deeper topic. Her own personal nature. Yet to leave fame still with such eyes and that bright hair, God, if I might and before I go hence, take in her stead to our tossed bed one little dream, no matter how small, how wild, just now, I think I find it in a field under a fence, a frail, dead, newborn lamb, ghostly and pitiful and white, a blot upon the night, the moon's dropped child. Suddenly, fame is given a rallying cry personified into the form of a beautiful woman. There seems a declaration of lust and desire from the poem's speaker. Fame is a vision here, a flame for a moth. Mew, or her speaker at least, seems to want some carnal connection with it. It is Mew's own repressed sexuality that is straining to have a voice here. During her lifetime, the poet had some attempts to act upon it. Unfortunately, each of these ended in social humiliation, with disastrous consequences for her own self-esteem and reputation. This did not dampen her desire, however, and so a constant battle of shame and want was waged within her. Her own nature is at war with what society expected, or rather, would allow her to be. All she really wants is one little dream, no matter how small, how wild, one chance to truly embrace her nature. And so, fame takes on a brand new meaning here, Fame is acceptance, and that, in any form, would be enough from you. The final lines of the poem take on a slightly sinister tone, mimicking the gothic themes of earlier Victorian literature. Just now, I think I found it in a field. The it that she has found is her dream of acceptance. To me, it seems an admission of defeat, that her acceptance cannot be gained or rather simply a recognition that she may never have it in her life. The beauty of nature is abruptly replaced by the danger that lurks so often within the natural world. The language that Mew had been using to describe it was noble and adhered both to the romantic and Victorian tradition that had come before. In these final lines, however, it is a bizarre inversion of the pastoral. It is sickly and poisoned and haunting. 
This striking image is Mew once again carving a brand new voice in English poetry, where other Victorian poets sang the praises of England and her virtues. Mew chose to focus on its darker flaws, having fallen victim to them earlier in her own life. The choice of the lamb in these final lines is important. In Victorian poetry, heavily influenced by Christianity as it was, the lamb served as a jewel symbol. On the one hand, it symbolized innocence, and on the other, it was a totem for peace. In this poem, Mew finds it dead and frail, which inverts that symbolism. The innocence that was so often associated with England in Victorian poetry is not real, and any hope of acceptance or peace is a myth as well. In the words of academic Tim Kendall, these lines typify a poetry populated by the abandoned, the fallen, the trapped, the mad, the grief-damaged, and the newly dead. This would become the subject matter of most of Mew's poetry, and each one is more haunting than the last. So why this poem? I mentioned earlier that I find this poem timeless. I truly believe that it is as relevant today as it was when it was first published. Mew's poetry is always direct and poignant. To read her words is to have them resonate with you. Her use of language, voice and subject placed her above her contemporaries as something utterly unique. More importantly, this poem avoids the trap of many others of that time. Too often it was common to see a Victorian poem that raged against change and progress, choosing instead to bask in the old and natural. Mew refuses this. Instead, we encounter a layered poem from a forbidden perspective, one that looks to the future in hope, recognizing that what is in the past is gone. This poem helps us to appreciate some of the freedoms we have today, as well as understand that many of the longings we suffer from individually have been around much longer than we thought. More than that, this poem is a testament to the way in which certain poets were ahead of their time. Mew is one such poet. Her words linger in your mind, haunting you long after you've finished reading. What's your reading of the poem? I'd like to point out, as always, that this is my interpretation, and as such, very much up for debate. If you'd like to talk to me about it, or you'd like to suggest a poem for the podcast, you can reach me in a few ways. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. You can find my website, www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com, where you'll also find show notes for this episode, complete with references to everything I talk about. If none of that suits you, I'm on Instagram. Just search Words That Burn Podcast. There you can also find helpful study guides and bonus content. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music in this week's episode is by Sergei Cheremizanov and is used under Creative Commons license. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving me a review on whatever platform you're listening on, as it really would help me out. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to me, and hopefully you'll hear from me again soon. <laughs>